This is Rob Thomas, and you're watching the TV Writer Podcast. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web. And by Final Draft Script Writing Software, the entertainment industry standard for script writing worldwide. My name's Gray Jones, and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast, partner of Script Magazine, episode 32 for Monday, August 29th, 2011. Well, today I am so excited to bring you an interview with writer, producer, author, and show creator Rob Thomas. He's the successful author of five novels. He's a screenplay writer. He sold a pile of pilots, including several shows that went to air. He was the creator of Cupid, Veronica Mars, and most recently, Party Down. And he has a great, great story to tell. We're going to get to his inter interview in just a moment. But first, I uh, want to remind you, go to tvwriterpodcast.com for lots of great resources. You'll find the TV Writer Twitter database with over 860 writers now. Um, there's also a, a newly expanded uh, section on resource links, uh, helped, of course, by our TV Writer Podcast Summer Contest. Thanks to all who entered. And the list of winners is posted on the site. There were over $800 worth of prizes given. And uh, so uh, it was a great, great success. And as well, I want to remind you that there is a DSLR page there now that has lots of helpful links in case you want to shoot your own short film or web series or even your own pilot. Hmm, who knows? Could happen. As a matter of fact, Rob Thomas is going to tell you in a moment about how he shot his own pilot. And he shot it on spec. In other words, nobody was paying him to do it. And that pilot became Party Down. So it does happen. Uh, lots more in Rob's interview. Enjoy. This is great, and I'm here with writer, producer, author Rob Thomas. How are you doing, Rob? I'm doing great. Well, it is absolutely a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Um, I'm a big fan of Veronica Mars, and uh, I know that you have really had a great career in Hollywood so far. And I, I know Phil Klemmer, so uh, um, he's told me a lot about you. Phil is a great guy and, you know, one of my early hires that I'm really proud of. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's doing uh, super well, and I, I know he's really excited to be back on uh, Chuck. Too bad it's only going for a few more episodes, but five seasons, man. Yeah, yeah, it worked out for him. Yeah, yeah, really well. Um, so, so we always roll back way back, and uh, and so you started out in Washington, but you moved pretty quickly to Texas. Would you s consider yourself a Washington native or a Texan? Uh, well, both of those things probably. I guess I'm technically a Washington native. I, you know, I moved at age 10, so sort of a, my childhood was sort of neatly divided in half between Washington and then we moved to Austin when I was 10 and I essentially spent the next 20 years there before heading to Hollywood and, and now I'm back in Austin. Mm hmm. Oh, uh, yeah. So, so are you working out of Austin? Are you on a project there or you're just, that's where you got family and? After 13 years in Los Angeles, I decided to move. You know, I, I came out to LA as a single 30 year old and sort of 13 years later, I'm a married family man and, and it felt kind of sane to raise a family in Austin. Mm -hmm. And so we, my wife and I moved the kids back a year and a half ago. And now for projects, I do 
a lot of commuting to Los Angeles. I, I know the American Airlines Austin LA schedule by heart. I'm, I'm on those flights a lot. <laughs> wow. Wow. Very cool. Well, yeah. well, going, going back to the earlier years, um, you know, reading about your, um, your experience, I, I don't know. I, I felt a little bit of sympathetical with you. And I, I'll tell you a little uh, more about that in a bit. But you, you played basketball. You played football. You played bass guitar in, in a band. <laughs> um, and, yeah. uh, and it, it's, then you end, ended up working as a teacher later on. And it, it just seemed, and correct me if I'm wrong, that, um, that high school and college were really cool years for you. Uh, yeah, I know. And that's sort of uncool, um, to, to actually have quality high school years that I look back on fondly, but largely that's, you know, that's pretty true. I mean, I certainly had my share of teen angst, but, but for the most part, those were pretty good years. You know, as uncool as it may sound, I actually did have fun in high school and it was not a horrifying experience for me. Yeah, I had a good time. And then I went off to TCU and I, I played football at TCU for a couple of years before I sort of big life changes. I, I grew my hair long and shaped it in weird places and started hanging out in Dallas punk clubs and quit playing football to move back to Austin and play in a rock band and go to UT. Um, uh-huh. So yeah, I had a, an, an artistic awakening a while at uh, TCU. Uh huh. That's that's funny because I I went through virtually the exact same thing. I mean, I was I was in sports all through high school, and then after that, um, played bass in a rock band. We toured across Canada and were on the radio and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, all right. It sounds like it sounds like you had a better band than I did. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm I'm sure it was uh about the same level when you're <laughs> you're you're trying hard but not quite getting where you'd like to be. <laughs> Yeah, that's, uh, you know, sort of nine years of beating our head against the wall, but, yeah. um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade those years. Uh, I had a good time. Oh, yeah. Now, it, you mentioned something on your website about, uh, about the idea of a Renaissance man. Was that something that was consciously in your mind, uh, during that time? No, it was just, I think I used that on, like, my, book flap copy on my first novel and it Mm -hmm. was really just an attempt to be clever more than an actual life goal but i did have sort of varied interests Mm -hmm. and and so you did uh, graduate college with a with a history degree yeah i sort of intended like i always thought i would be a journalist and and i was heading towards a double major in journalism and history, but when I transferred from TCU to UT, I had so many journalism hours that I would have had to repeat a bunch to for UT to give me a journalism degree as well, so I just ended up with a history degree. Hmm. And and then you taught for, uh, t- you taught high school level for about five years? I did, yeah. I taught uh, two years in San Antonio and uh, three years in Austin. Mm. So what what was that experience like for you? Because you you were still pretty young. You were early twenties at that point, right? Yeah, I was very young. I was twenty three when I started teaching, and I was teaching high school. And you know, I, I think I was still in my I was in in my second year of teaching when I went into the nurse's office and asked if she could give me some aspirin, and she she said, "Oh no, no, I'm sorry, honey, but if you if you have your mom bring some up to school, you can take some." <laughs> um, so I was, yeah, I was a very youthful teacher uh, uh-huh. at the time. 
you know, I had a good time. Teaching is a tough job and, you know, with lots of high highs and low lows. My parents were both teachers and I did enjoy it. I sort of, you know, I ended up liking writing better and it was certainly more profitable, but I, I didn't leave teaching because I didn't enjoy it. Hmm. So now around 93, you made the jump to LA. Um, so were you already thinking that you wanted to write at that point or, or was this still journalism? Cause I know you worked for channel one news for what, two or three years. It was just one, and that was the year that I sort of switched from rock band to writing. I'd, I'd been playing in the band for those from the nine years of sort of my last three years of college and my first five or six years of being out of college. And I was teaching high school in Austin, and my students, I was teaching broadcast journalism as well as advising the newspaper and the yearbook. And my students kept winning the Channel One video contest. Uh-huh. And so the, the people at Channel One became familiar with me and when they wanted to hire like a young, cool teacher to be the liaison between the subscriber schools and the editorial end of the show, they hired me and it was a big decision for me because it meant leaving the band behind and the dream of, you know, mm. being a rock star and yeah. though really it's the smartest thing that, that I could have done. And, and so once I moved out to LA and I had all this, you know, I no longer had a creative venture in my life. I I started writing a novel and just I wrote a page a day for a year mm -hmm. and sort of after nine years of nothing nothing happening in the band, the the writing took off very quickly. Like I very quickly got a book agent and then very quickly got a book deal and ended up moving back to Austin for three or four years and writing my next three, four novels. Yeah, and you ended up publishing, what, five novels? Uh, four novels and a collection of short stories for Simon & Schuster. Wow. Yeah. And uh, and actually, in a lot of circles, you're more known for that than, than your TV work. In the young adult land, I mean, it was, it was easier to be a big fish in that smaller pond. Although I think, you know, in the 20 years since, or however long it's been, I think there's been a real boom in YA fiction. Um, there are a lot of good people working out there. But yeah, I mean, that that was going well for me for a while. Mm -hmm. Well, and now it's it's interesting because, and, and I'm sure um, you were uh, informed in your writing by a lot of your experiences. You're having a good experience in, in high school and college, then you're teaching in high school, then Channel One is all based on, you know, right. young adults. And so a lot of your stories... Then and even later on in, in television, um, you really seem to get that, that adolescent voice. Uh, well, I just, I think the best training for writing Veronica Mars was, you know, my years as a high school yearbook teacher, you know, because 95% of a, a yearbook staff is, is female and, you know, you work with those kids after school and on weekends and so you, <laughs> like, it was just like a crash course in, in girl speak. And, you know, <laughs> you know, I'm not even sure that I claim to have the teen voices in my head as much as feeling like I was keyed into what they worried about, you mm. know, what, what their concerns of the day were. Because, I, you know, like when I was writing Veronica Mars, it's a pretty stylized dialogue. I mean, on that show, we let kids say what you know, what they wish they'd say if they got to think about it for a day. You know, it's more like Heather's in the sense that 
you know, we're going to let them be clever. And <laughs> Veronica gets to say, you know, she gets to quip oh, a yeah. lot. You know, I, I think shows like Friday Night Lights or Freaks and Geeks did a much better job of actually sounding like real teenagers. Mm-hmm. Like we, we were always going for a more heightened dialogue style. Yeah. Well, it, it really, really worked. And, and we'll get, we'll get to that in a minute. But first, um, you, uh, you wrote, um, well, first on, on a Cartoon Network show, and then um, you you wrote a feature um, that, it, I guess, it eventually became Fortune Cookie, so it went through some variations between then, um, and that really helped launch your TV career. Tell me about that. This is sort of the, the crazy miracle story that, that never happens, and, and so it's nothing I would ever recommend to an aspiring writer because this, uh, the odds on this, it was really like hitting the lottery. When, when I was at Channel One, one of my jobs was to run the student contests and we would have each year there sort of like a Willy Wonka thing. Students were invited to send in audition tapes and a letter of recommendation and we'd get like 2,000 tapes in and we'd pick 10 of these kids to come out to LA and take over the show for a week. And mm-hmm. at this point, you know, like the anchors at Channel One were Lisa Ling and Anderson Cooper and Serena wow. Altschul. I mean, they, they had uh, really quality people there. And so we'd get all these audition tapes in, and, and my job as a low-level employee was to simply take the, the 2,000 tapes and get it down to the 100 finalists for mm-hmm. the actual people in power to, to choose but these, you know, and I was running the contest and I had got these 2,000 letters of recommendation and one of them was addressed specifically to me, to Rob Thomas, manager of school participation. Really? And, and that one letter was from Jeff Sagansky, the then president of CBS television. No. Yeah. And he was recommending his niece and his niece was great and she ended up getting, uh, she was one of the 10 kids who got picked. And so, you know, a year later when I had uh, my first novel in Bound Galleys, I thought, well, this will just, this is just, uh, the worst it is is a waste in $3 in postage. And I wrote a letter back to Jessica Gansky saying, hey, you may remember writing me last year about your niece. Gosh, she was great. I just sold my first book to Simon & Schuster, but I'm interested in writing for television. If CBS has any shows in production revolving around teen characters, would you mind forwarding this manuscript to the producers? And it's a, it's insane. This would never, I, I can't believe this actually worked. And, you know, uh-huh. to show you how naive I was, I actually believe CBS might have shows about teenage characters. <laughs> yeah. But, like, six months later, I got this call out of the blue from Jeff Sagansky. He had read my book and he said that, if my so-called life got picked back up, he was friends with Ed Zwick and he would recommend me for the show. And in the meantime, asked me to send any um, features that I wrote or any screenplays that I'd written. And so it was that fortune cookie screenplay that I, I was hired. Uh, just somebody wanted to make an indie movie and they were trying to make it for a hundred thousand dollar budget. Mm-hmm. And they paid me a thousand dollars to write a romantic comedy that could happen in one location with six characters. Wow. And so it, it, it really reads like my dinner with Andre with uh-huh. three couples. And, and so it's really just page after page of dialogue, but uh-huh. I sent it to Jeff Sagansky and 
he called me and said, come to New York. I want you to pitch a romantic comedy for television. And he forwarded that script to the producers of Dawson's Creek. And that's how I got my first job. And it's how I got Cupid on the air. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's a crazy story. I really, I went from writing young adult novels in Texas to having a show on ABC in about 14 months. Unbelievable. So, yeah. uh, so moving on to Cupid then. So you have a show on the air. I mean, how did he handle that? I mean, did they hook you up with a, a an experienced showrunner, or were you already running the show, or or how did that happen? You know, all I had was, you know, one season of Dawson's Creek under my belt, and in those situations, they almost always, or they always put you with an experienced showrunner. And they hired a couple of guys who had run Moonlighting for mm-hmm. a couple of years, who were very good writers. And those are always weird shotgun marriages when there's a you know like a newbie creator of a show and people are brought in to be his boss um Mm -hmm. but at a a certain point the network decided that they wanted me to run the show and so those guys were let go halfway through that season so by about mid the middle of that season i was running cupid wow wow and it was it was a huge learning curve i mean it was one of the more intense years of my life doing that for the first time, but it was invaluable. It was it was great. And I had a great director-producing partner who really took a ton of the work off my plate. I mean, he sort of ran the production end of it and allowed me to just run the writer's room and deal with scripts. Wow. And, uh, and so after that, now, so unfortunately, Cupid was canceled after, what, 14 episodes? 15. 15? 14 aired 14 aired here but we shot 15 and they appear randomly on Mexican television so uh <laughs> i've i've actually bought a a set of cupids that included the full 15 and it's you know it's the funniest thing because it's in english but i've got it with the spanish subtitles on oh uh, that's <laughs> that's hilarious and so so obviously that was uh, probably a hard experience having your show canceled but it seems like after that you were pretty busy. Um, you get you had a whole bunch of pilots um, going. So tell me about what happened after that. Well, I was busy, but it was largely busy with disaster after disaster. You know, at the end of Cupid, I was in this great position because though the show didn't make it to a second season, it scored well with critics and people dug the show. And David Kelly asked me to come in and run his new show and it was sort of like momentarily being anointed crown prince of television and I managed to squander that. I, I got a big overall deal at Fox and then left the David Kelly show because of creative differences on that show and then I then really did pilot for the ne- pilots for the next four years that did not make it on the air and it was you know Veronica Mars came along at the point where I was ready to return to the young adult fiction world. I, if, wow. If, if, if that pilot had not gotten picked up, and I finished the Veronica Mars pilot, and I was so happy with it that I, I really figured, you know what, if this doesn't get on the air, I'm, I'm done. I, can't, I, I felt like I had wasted my mid-30s beating my head against the wall again. And yeah, so after, after like a six or seven-year good streak from the time I signed my first book deal to sort of the moment I left the David Kelly 
camp, things were great. And then it really was sort of four years of making a hot career go very, very cold. Yeah. Well, it's a, you know, it's interesting, though, because there there are a lot of writers who are like career pilot writers. And right. I, I mean, the, 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 the business is like each network is is paying for tons and tons and tons and tons of scripts and even shooting a pile of shows that never never get picked up um and so uh, i mean i imagine it it on I, one hand it was frustrating but at the, the other on the other hand i'm sure it really um gave you a great education at the same time it was a great education but it wasn't it wasn't much fun and it was you know it was kind of great in the sense that they paid me a lot of money but it you know, with that comes a lot of pressure. And so, you know, it felt like, you know, like an athlete who has a great rookie year and gets the big contract and then underperforms. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, it was not great for my psyche. It did feel very much like, uh, like being a flash in the pan. And, and in fact, even when I signed that overall deal with Fox, like I, flew with a buddy to Vegas to celebrate that weekend and I picked up a copy of Entertainment Weekly and I flipped the page and there was like a full page story where the lead was how can Hollywood be crying poor when they're willing to pay unproven showrunners like Rob Thomas this kind of crazy running. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. And then for four years not getting a show on the air it was it was bleak. Wow. Yeah, but you redeemed yourself with Veronica Mars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that Veronica Mars was awesome and incredibly well received by the critics. Um, tell me about starting that show. I had wanted, sort of, from the time I got to LA to do a teen show. I'd, I'd written all those young adult novels, and I felt very comfortable in in that uh, genre. And and it was sort of Freaks and Geeks was a show that I adored so much that I I just I thought it you can't do a better teen show and and the brilliant the wonderful thing that it did was it really told small stories and and no one was telling small stories and so I was I was really rooting for that show and when it went away I started you know I thought well you know I'm not going to be able to get a teen show picked up you know because I I didn't necessarily want to do something like just overtly soapy Mm -hmm. And I felt like the freaks and geeks couldn't make it. Then you know something hip and cool wasn't going to work. And and then finally, you know, I sort of landed on this idea of what if I marry a teen show with a procedural? Mm -hmm. And then what kind of procedural could I buy? And before I left Texas and came to L.A., I had sold two new novels to Simon & Schuster. Like, I had pitched them ideas for my next two young adult novels, and one of them was called Untitled Teen Detective. And in it, the hero of the of the show was Keith Mars. And oh, yeah? Keith was the kid. And and I just, I went back to that idea, and I thought, well, I can do, you know, I can do a case of the week uh, with this one. And in, in that detective novel, it was going to be about a guy... You know, very much it was a it was the male Veronica Mars, and and it was going to you know the novel was going to just investigate this you know the death of his friend and mm -hmm. and so I thought thematically I really wanted to hit on this idea of you know teens today are this prematurely jaded group and they see too much before their time and they're 
they're robbed of their innocence way too young and it and it just became a much more interesting story to me to make the detective a girl hmm. like I, it felt more poignant to me when you tell a story of loss of innocence with with a girl and and so I thought well this is an idea I can sell but I wrote it I, I spec that script which was great because I wrote it as dark as I wanted hmm that pilot is, is you know, another couple of degrees darker than what was actually shot. Like, you know, at the end of the pilot, she, she actually realized that her dad had betrayed her in this way. And and even though, uh, you know, I had a, a great champion over at UPN, but, I mean, they were still questioning whether Veronica could be raped. We had already shot the pilot, and wow. they were thinking of taking that out. So it was a bit of a struggle at the beginning, but once the show got on the air, UPN, then the CW, they treated the show very well. Hmm. Yeah, it, I remember um, reading an interview that said that they were really, really behind their show and, and that they didn't exert network control, I guess you would say, as much as some other shows. Well, I don't want to make it sound like we didn't get notes. And in fact, at the beginning of the series, you know, the first, probably any new show, the first five or six episodes, you are getting a lot of notes and everyone is trying to figure out what the show is and everybody has their hands on it. And and I think it was when the show premiered and, and the reviews came in that things eased up a bit. But, I mean, there were very good people giving us notes along the way. It wasn't like they just rubber-stamped everything. But but they did – creatively, it was kind of a dream experience for a network show. Hmm. I, I mean, just a really, really strong show. And, I, I, I mean, I'm, I have a bit of an experience. I, I also do a podcast for, for NBC's Chuck, and I find ratings do not equal quality. <laughs> <laughs> you can have a really, really high quality show and it doesn't have anything to do with how many people are going to see it, it seems. Right. That is, that is true. I'd love to talk to you for hours about Veronica Mars, but, uh, you can say, unfortunately, it was canceled after the third season, or you can say, wow, what a privilege. Three great seasons. Um, but, uh, after that, um, I, I want to actually jump ahead a little bit, if that's okay. Uh, oh, up sure, to, yeah. uh, to party down. Um, is that uh -huh. jumping too far? Like, is there anything that you'd want to mention in between those two? No, no, that's great. Veronica Mars and Party Down are two that I like <laughs> talking about. <laughs> okay. And so, yeah. so Party Down, I, I love the fact that you were working with John Enbaum and Dan Etheridge, um, again. And, uh, now had, had you worked with them in between or, or? Well, Dan and I have worked together on many, projects you know i mean dan helped me break the veronica mars pilot and was you know sort of my producing partner on projects before that or or at least he would have been had we gotten them off the ground mm -hmm. um but dan and i have worked together now for many many years and dan and john are our best friends going back to yale days oh wow and I become friendly with John and we lost a writer on Veronica Mars in season one. And I had hung out a lot with John and liked John a lot. And I knew he was a funny guy, but I really largely hired John just on the good faith that he would be a good writer. Uh -huh. And I mean, he was spectacular. I mean, he, I mean, John is just a, a star writer, but it, I'll admit it was a huge relief when he turned in that first Veronica Mars <laughs> and yeah. was like, Oh, good. Oh, good. My, my instinct here was not off. And then that was, I mean, you know, that experience doing Veronica Mars for three years. I mean, John was just one of those people you could hand a script and know you would get something great back. And I think John may be even more comfortable in, in comedy in a way that, you know, I'm probably slightly more comfortable in drama. Mm -hmm. 
And so, so tell me about coming up with that story and, and, and how you sold it. I had an ex-girlfriend who's British, and she sent me this email saying, there's a show, you've got to watch it, it is your thing, you're going to love this, TiVo it and check it out and thank me later. And and I had been, you know, people had hyped other British comedies to me that, like, I don't know, Abfab or or the young ones that I, I mean, I saw their merits, but they weren't really my thing. And then, so I, I turned on the show and it was, it was the British version of The Office. Hmm. And in that first scene of that show where Ricky Gervais hires like a forklift operator and it's just one take for about three minutes on him. Uh-huh. And, and my jaw was on the floor and I called John and Dan like the next week and, and Paul Rudd and said, come over and watch this show because I think it may be the best show of all time. Uh-huh. And I, I want to make sure I'm not crazy. And and so we started getting together each week to watch the British office and we just became fascinated by it. And I had, I had never had any interest in writing comedy because I didn't think that sort of set up punchline rhythm was mm-hmm. up my alley. I mean, I like plenty of sitcoms. I lo- I watch a lot of them, but it never felt like what I do but the office started to feel like something, well, that's not really writing jokes. You know, that, I mean, it's writing funny, but it's not writing jokes. And it felt like, yeah, like my thing or something I'd be comfortable doing. And so we came, we just started batting around ideas for, for a show. And we thought, you know, if the British office is a show about people who've sort of given themselves over to the rat race. Let's do a show about people who chase the dream for too long. Hmm. You know, typically in uh, television, you you tell the story of dreamers who make it. Mm-hmm. Um, let, let's do the show about a similarly grim show about about people who don't make it and may never. Uh-huh. And so we just started working on it in spare time. And we ended up taking the pitch into HBO. And they bought the pitch in the room, and we felt very good about it. And then we turned in the outline to HBO. And they hated it. Clearly, oh, no. they, I mean, they really, they really hated it. And, and I think when they heard the pitch, they thought, you know, HBO kind of likes to be inside Hollywood. And I think they thought that our characters would be, you know, like catering movie premieres and, you know, mm. that would be inside the industry. And instead, we turned in a pilot episode that was a Sherman Oaks Neighborhood Homeowners Association potluck. <laughs> And they felt very strongly that that wasn't their thing or their brand. And mm. so we took it and we resold it at FX and had a great development experience and took it all the way to script. And those guys treated us very well. And I think at the end of the day, they just didn't think it programmed well with It's Always Sunny. They thought the audiences were too different. And mm-hmm. so they sort of reluctantly let it go. And then it really sat on a shelf for for three years. Like we, I think we wrote that before Veronica Mars was even on the air. Wow. Um, but we shot it. We ended up shooting the pilot with sort of my money in my house the year that Veronica Mars final season, they cut back our order by two episodes. So instead of doing 22, we did 20. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of Veronica Mars crew with nothing to do. And we sort of made our own independently financed party down pilot with, you know, actors who we knew and loved uh, you know, had it gone at HBO, you know, at that point, Paul was going to star in it in, as the Henry character. But, mm-hmm. you know, three years later, he was, you know, on the verge of movie stardom. And 
Adam Scott's one of Paul's best friends and uh, a guy I have known and am friend- have been friendly with. And we all thought it was perfect for Adam Scott. And Ken Marino had been doing a lot of Veronica Mars episodes. He'd done one episode. It was a character that I thought would be a, you know, a one-off in the show. And we just loved him so much that he probably ended up doing 10 or 12 episodes as rival private detective Vinnie Van Lowe. And, mm-hmm. And Jane Lynch had done a party down and she had just done Anchorman, I think, with Paul. And so Paul called Jane to see if she would be willing to play that role. And we really, I mean, we sort of, when we were writing the Constance role, we, we were sort of, we sort of had Jane Lynch prototype and, uh-huh. uh, and we're lucky enough to actually get her to do it. And we took that and we shot it and then we shot that disc all around town. And we really, we had gotten some interest, but no one had made an offer. And uh, one of my agents said, I think, I think stars wants to start programming original comedy. And I think they'll like this. Mm -hmm. And we showed them the disc and they bought it. It was, you know, it came very close to being a lot of money down the drain. Had they not, (laughs) had they not picked that up. Wow. Wow. Very, very cool story. Um, well, we're, we're getting close to the end of the time here, and uh, I would be shot if I didn't ask you um, a few things. And one of them is, for both Party Down and Veronica Mars, um, there's been talk of movies. Uh, tell me what's up with those. Really, nothing with Veronica Mars. You know, Warner Brothers controls the rights to Veronica Mars, and so far they, they haven't had a lot of interest or not any interest in doing a Veronica Mars movie and I can't do that on my own. I do, mm. you know, I do think there are Veronica Mars fans that think that the problem lies in that I haven't written a script or made it happen, but mm. I, I have no control over that. The people at stars have given us permission to make a movie and we have had interest on that and that we feel hopeful that we have a decent shot of there being a party down movie. The cast all wants to do it. We have permission. There is interest, you know, one thing that we can't control is John now has his own comedy on NBC and I have a comedy pilot at Fox. Hmm. It can be, it could be tricky if we both have shows on the air figuring out when and when, when we can do it. But everybody, everybody in the party down front wants that to happen. And so we're hoping it can. Hmm. Very, very cool. Well, um, before I let you go, I also have to ask you, um, this, this is a, a TV writing podcast and, um, a lot of people who, who listen are very eager to find out how to break into the industry. And, and in, uh, I know that you had a, uh, probably not the most common path in, but if you were to give advice to writers who want to break in to, uh, to find a staff job, um, what would you tell them? Yeah, don't follow my path because it's <laughs> such a, it's like being the starlet discovered in a soda shop. It, I don't know that that happens particularly often. You know, the most common way, like my first two assistants are both big time, well paid TV writers. Um, it's, it's, to me, it's the most common path in and it makes complete sense. You know, if you can manage to let, you know, get a PA job or better yet, a writer's assistant job or producer's assistant job on a show, you're surrounded by people who, you know, you can see how the job works. First of all, if you're working somebody's desk, you start networking producers' assistants, meet agents' assistants who become agents. And, you know, it's like making that, you know, getting to that point where you have people who will read your work. I mean, of course, job one is, 
having great writing samples. And then job two, and hopefully you can do these at the same time, is is having people who will read those. And so if you're aggressive enough to network and try to land one of those jobs, it's, I think, the most common path I ever hear for people breaking into the business. And certainly, like, my assistants, my former assistants, have done quite well in the business. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and on the creative side, um, you have sold a pile of pilots. You've also had several shows go to series. You've sold books. Um, what advice would you have about generating the ideas for pilots or, or other stories? I don't, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm a, a consumer of pop culture. I am, I read a ton of magazines. I, I, I'm on, you know, I read the web all the time. And usually it's just pleasure reading, but always in my mind, I'm thinking, what is the next show? What is the next show? And I just feel like in my normal daily going about my business, those things pop up and I get excited about something and, and I will mull it over. And if it's something that sticks in my head, uh, like if I'm still mulling it a few days later, it, it feels like a real idea and it, it sort of takes over. I suppose there's a bit of it that is just existing, you know, working the, in the business a long time. You have an idea of also what will sell and what won't sell. Like right now I'm desperate to do a, a Western. I've been, uh-huh. you know, I moved back to Texas. I want to shoot something locally. I, there, read a couple books i like i, I want to do like a a dark western about texas in the 1850s and the comanche battles but i also know if i do that i'm i'm i probably have one or two potential buyers and they're long shots and so uh-huh. i don't know whether i devote four months of my time chasing after a project that would be a long shot to sell mm-hmm. part one you know always be alert for ideas and part two know what can possibly sell out there. Mm-hmm. Well, I really, really appreciate you taking this time and uh, and sharing your story. And uh, it's it's just so fun to hear the behind, behind the scenes for all these uh, cool shows. And and I really wish you luck in uh, in this uh, new comedy and and all the things you're writing. Um, hoping for the next party down or Veronica Mars pretty soon. All right. Well, thanks so much. <laughs> cool. Okay. Thanks so much, Rob. All right. Thanks. Great. Okay. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web. And by Final Draft Script Writing Software, the entertainment industry standard for script writing worldwide. <laughs>